0: Welcome to the final and 10th episode of Season 1 for Sharing Life Lessons. I am your host, Hamida, and I want to bring you stories. Because stories inspire, stories teach, and stories heal. Yes, listeners, this is the last and final episode of Season 1 for Sharing Life Lessons. It has been my honor and pleasure for bringing you 10 episodes of this podcast. I went from knowing nothing about how to host a podcast to actually delivering 10 episodes. To me, that feels good. Also, 1,800 streams, actually over 1,800 streams is what we have already. And so this is a shout out to you for not only listening, but supporting and encouraging. Lastly, if you do want to support further, you should go to anchor.fm backslash sharing life lessons. There is a support button there with a dollar sign, hit it, and you will be able to subscribe a monthly subscription. For those who want to be a guest on this podcast, please go to my Facebook page for sharing life lessons and connect with me that way. Season two will begin in 15 days on April 15th. Today, we have an amazing guest joining us for the finale of season one for sharing life lessons. Her intriguing story begins when she was seven years old. Everyone, please welcome Emily Davis. Hey, Emily. Thank you so much for being on the show. I am really thrilled. And what I want to let the listeners know is that Emily and I really don't know each other, but I happened to put it out there and ask if there is someone who would like to share their story. And Emily raised her hands. And I'm so, so thrilled that you raised your hands. So Emily, can you tell us something about yourself? Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show. First and foremost, I'm really, really happy to be here. And I'm really excited to get to share my story with your listeners. And I hope it really helps people. I am a bestselling author. I am a psychic. I'm a metaphysical coach that helps people learn to access their spiritual abilities and overcome their fears of doing so. Um, And all of this is because I am a domestic violence survivor. So they all go really hand in hand, and I just am excited and really passionate to get to, to talk about the journey of not only going through domestic violence, but how you bounce back and create a life that's not centered on someone else's yuck. So.
0: Yeah, and, and I heard you say two very distinct concepts here. One is a domestic violence survivor, and one a metaphysical coach. So I'm hoping we can talk about both those aspects of your life on this episode, uh, but yeah. let's start. Being that this podcast is sharing life lessons, let's start with your life lesson from everything that you've gone through. What is your overarching life lesson that you would like to share with the listeners?
1: Absolutely. My biggest life lesson by far is that external validation is a myth. You cannot get it. You cannot validate your actions, your thoughts, your beliefs from external sources. It doesn't work in your favor. It never does. It feels really good when someone says something good about you, and you're like, "Oh yay!" But if you can't do those things and and validate yourself and your own experience and what is actually true about you and what you're going through um, yourself, or with your own, you know, spirit guide team or with your own intuitive guidance, then it's never going to be effective in helping you grow and heal and expand. And That's, so, I
0: think, the
1: biggest one. <laughs> if
0: you're saying if you're saying no external validation, then mm-hmm. what are you? Pro- posing the listeners to. so the biggest thing that I always tell people is
1: you have to get to know your energy you have to get to know your own intuition and you have to be the person that you want cheering you on that's the whole thing the concept is you have to be your own cheerleader you have to be that person who whenever you're having those self-doubts another part of you chimes up and goes Hold on, stop. Like, you don't need to do this. Like, you are as incredible as you think you are. It's a guaranteed fact of life. Like, you are as amazing as you are. It's true. Like, allow yourself to be that powerful, wonderful person that you are without anyone else's judgment or caring because anything they're going to say to you about you is only a reflection of them, whether it's a good thing or a negative thing. It's just their own mirror of what their own experience is. So, as long as you can validate yourself internally or listen to your intuition or hear your spirit guides or hear whatever it is, from like your own guidance team, your own guidance energetic system, that's where you're actually going to get clarity. That's where you're really going to take yourself to the next level. And that's when you're going to stop seeking and being dependent upon other people's emotions and feelings and what's going on. It's where it's a space where life stops happening to you and instead it's where you start living life.
0: That's wonderful. That is such a good life lesson. So, so Emily, we do need to talk a bit about how, what the process would be to get in touch with your intuition and get in touch with your spirit guides. But let's first start with, tell us your story. How did you get yourself into a situation where domestic violence occurred? Absolutely.
1: First of all, I love that you asked that question in general because I feel sometimes people are afraid to ask that question because they're like almost afraid to ask me because they're afraid that I'm not gonna want to take blame or I'm gonna deflect or something along those lines. Um, Which is 100% not the case. So I really appreciate that you're like open and vulnerable with that. To answer the question fully, I got to go way, way back to when I was a kid. And I had a really amazing childhood. I really, really, truly did. But I had all of these weird psychic gifts happening from as long as I can remember. I was seeing people in my room that no one else could see, I could hear, I would walk into a room with like in a party and all of a sudden my brain would just explode with people's different spirit guides and their ancestors and all this stuff like talking in my head and as a little kid I would like have a panic attack because I wouldn't know what was going on. All these different things were happening all the time and obviously it was terrifying and no one I knew around me really understood what was happening so even when I tried to talk about it, mind you I was like seven so I'm sure it came out really, really odd. (laughs) But anytime I tried to talk about it, no one really could understand. So I started to think of it as something that wasn't good. I thought it was really odd. And so I tried to suppress that as much as possible. And out of fear and out of guilt and out of shame and all these different things, I spent a lot of my adolescent and teenage years suppressing as much of this as I could. And still, I was afraid of things still, I would be afraid to go to sleep. There was a period of time in high school where I made my mom sleep in my bed with me every single night so that I wasn't, so nothing would come and bother me, or if it did, my mom was right there, so I felt safe, All right. So in, in high school, you're afraid of people's judgment, just period, but for me, I was like, People are going to think I worship the devil, like this is really bad. (laughs) Like I can't share any of this. So I had this cap on it. And the issue came is when I was putting that cap on it, it not only blocked my spiritual abilities with all of this fear, but it blocked off a huge part of my intuition. And that's when I really started seeking. I wanted someone to come in and tell me and love me for who I was and tell me how perfect and wonderful I was without me having to share that part of myself. I wanted people to love me for not my whole me, for this part of me that I was going to show to the world. And obviously, because I wasn't being authentic, that wasn't happening and it wasn't happening. So finally, when this man came in right at like my end of high school and was just, I was easy prey at that point in time where he was just like, oh, you need these things? I can say these pretty words to you. And I believed everything he said. And so um, shortly after graduation, I, he and I were together and that's how I ended up in the the really fun horrible relationship of about four and a half, five years. Um, I ended up having two kids with him and I married him and all this different stuff right outside of high school. So it was, it was a lot of, I was really easy prey for a narcissistic psychopath. And also I was so blocked on in my intuition that the red flags weren't red flags to my brain. And I just wanted the pretty words to be true so badly that that landed me where I was.
0: Wow. So you were young, you were vulnerable and you found the man who understood that you were the perfect prey. Mm-hmm. And so he took advantage of that. When you when you started experiencing or when domestic violence was happening, why would you not stop it? Like, why would you let it continue? So the really interesting
1: thing that happens, especially when you're in a, a, a domestic violence or abuse situation, and honestly, the violence part of it is not the most traumatic part. The most okay. traumatic part is your brain is no longer yours. There's no feelings in your brain that you don't, or, or thoughts in your brain that you don't second guess all the time. So it's, it's literally, they put you in this state where nothing in reality is real. You're stuck in your head constantly being like, okay, well, I'm feeling this, but that can't be right because he said this, this, and this, but his actions did this, and I don't understand. Maybe it is all my fault because I can't seem to understand. And so if I can love him better, then I'll get it there. And so you're just constantly second guessing yourself. And you're also so actively in fight or flight all the time that your brain doesn't understand basically what is even happening half the time, because you're literally just like, I hope I can figure out how to make him happy tonight. That's all that's in your head at that period of time, because you're just struggling to make it through day to day. And then the other thing that really interestingly happens is part of you doesn't want to admit that you're in an abusive situation, not because, you know, you are in that situation and you don't know what to do next. That's not necessarily it, but By admitting that you're in an abusive situation, you're admitting that you put yourself there, that you got to that point, that you allowed it to get to that space. And not only has your identity died so much already by being in that space, but it's like by admitting that, you're dying this final part of your identity death because no one ever thinks that they're going to get there. And so when you, you resist admitting that it's abusive for so long because you don't want to admit that thing about yourself that you were essentially, you know, weak enough or, or vulnerable enough to get to this position. And now you've also stayed in this position for as long as you have. So it's like almost this overwhelming guilt that if you acknowledge how bad it is, then you're acknowledging that you have failed. And that is almost as hard as acknowledging that your partner is in fact abusive. So that is a big thing and big reason why you're in there in, in the first place and can't seem to stop it. For me in my particular situation. He was the most manipulative and charismatic person on the face of the earth. There was one time, and I will never forget it. It was starting to get bad. It was right after my daughter was born. So she's the second of my kids. My kids are 13 months apart. And he, I forget exactly what happened, but he was doing some sort of like criminal thing in the apartment next door. And I had no idea about what was happening. I was just making pizza for my kids. like I was not even thinking about it he comes running in and was like, the cops are on their way. You have to play along. I was in here the whole time. And I was just like, I don't understand what's happening, but like, okay, like I love you, whatever. And so the cops came and they pulled me into the car and they like started asking me questions. And I was like, oh yeah, no, he's doing whatever he like. I don't want this in my life at all. So like, yeah, he was doing whatever you're saying he was doing. He was definitely committing crimes next door. I don't know what they were, but I know he was over there. Like, please take him away essentially yeah. is what I did. And he talked himself out of getting arrested. They came into our house, they checked everything, they said everything was wonderful and perfect, and they told us to have a nice night. And I'm just sitting there like, literally, they can't even see past his thing, so it literally must just be me. So then I sat, got really stuck in the, it's just me. It's just me that sees this, he's really a wonderful person, even the cops think he's wonderful, his parents think he's amazing, like everyone thinks he's this wonderful person, it's just
0: my fault. And, and there so you that- go, you did not get your external validation. Nope. Yep. And so you, and that's, that's exactly what you said right in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Do not look for external validations because either if you get them, you can't fulfill them, or if you don't get them, then you start doubting yourself. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And shortly after that, he convinced me to move eight hours away from anyone I knew, partly because I think he was afraid the cops would come back and partly because he wanted me isolated. And so I couldn't start doubting him to him, he spun it off as like this beautiful act of love that we're going to move together and start this whole fresh thing. And to me, I was like desperate to believe that that was true. So I was like, yes, let's do it. And of the second that we moved to the new town that was so far away, everything went from
0: bad to extremely, extremely bad. I see. I see. So when it went from bad to extremely, extremely bad, did you ever consider involving the cops and having them come in and do something about it? There was a couple
1: times when I did consider that. First of all, he had this thing that he would say whenever he was like hitting me or anything horrible that he was doing or biting me or all these horrible things he did. He would always at the end of it be like, I'm not abusing you because I haven't touched your face and like walk away. And I'd be like, okay, is that true? Like, is that really reality? Like, because you're so doubting at that point in time, I was like, okay, so if I call the cops, am I going to be the one in trouble? Like, is it going to be my fault if they like, will they come and see me and see that it's not my face that was hurt? So like, they're not going to believe me either. You know, what's going to happen? Like, I don't, I don't know if that's true. And then also I had kids and I was like, are they going to take my kids away from me because I haven't been able to leave him? Like, am I going to lose my children because he's doing this to me? Like, I can't lose them. Like, I, this is my only, like, my only option is to stay to protect them. So I was stuck in that. And then there was one period of time where I actually, I showed my boss. I had bruises all up and down my arm. It was horrendous. It looked like my arm had been hit by a baseball bat over and over and over. And I, like, showed him. And my boss kind of looked at me. He was like, what, do you have a skateboarding accident? And I was like, yeah, that's what happened. He's like, that's what I thought. And, like, walked away. And I was like what? Not, no one's going to believe me. Like if you, if I saw someone's arm like that, I would be like, oh my God, what happened to you? Are you okay? Like what? And if they were like, oh, I had a skateboarding accident. I'd be like, no, you didn't. Like that's not what a skateboarding accident looks like. And so then I was just like, he was telling me constantly, no one would believe me. And then I was getting proof that no one would believe me. So calling the cops was just like, no, like he already talked his way out of it once. Like if I call them now, they're just going to take my kids and no one's going to believe me. And he's going to like, it doesn't even matter, and I was stuck in the like. I, it's okay. I'll fix it. If I just love him better, then it'll be fine. You know, as long as I can love him more, love him better, I can love all of this away. It'll be fine. I'm really good at loving. I can just keep doing this, and it'll be great. And of course, obviously, it wasn't. But you
0: know, Emily, what kind of impact was this having on your children? Were they? Was it? Was it ever in front of them, or he made sure that it was never in front of them, and he they didn't see anything?
1: Oh, it was in front of them for sure all the time but they were really young i left when my daughter had just turned one my son my older one was only barely two for the most part they were really little but it really did affect not my daughter so much she didn't really remember any of it she was baby baby but my son has almost a photographic memory so he remembers most of it it affects him even now pretty drastically Um, But at the time, like he would run up and he would start punching him if he was hitting me, like my little two year old would come up and just start going at him and be like, stop it and like be mad. But he could see and he would know and my son also has cerebral palsy. So it was it's a specific type of cerebral palsy that only affects half of your body. And it's really hard to not diagnose at birth that usually start showing up around um, one and a half, two years old. And so it, he was starting to show these signs. There was a, a long period of time where my ex refused to let me take him to the doctor because I think he thought he hurt him. So I was like, and that only, only happened while I was at work or whatever. So I didn't actually see that part of it, but it affected that as well. And finally I was able to like he caught a cold and I was like, I'm sorry, I got to take him to the dog Like, I have to. And I got there, I was like, what is wrong with his leg? Like, there's there's something seriously wrong with his leg. And yeah. that was a huge process, too, to get him diagnosed. And that didn't happen until after I left my ex, which is a part of the reason that I finally did that push of, like, you can't even let me take my kid to get medical care when he's, like, limping? Like, no.
0: So what actually made you say no more? It did, Was it an incident? Was it an event? What? Why did you decide to do something about it? And what did you do about it? So
1: it was a kind of a combination of things, to be totally honest. I knew I wasn't happy and I knew things were wrong, but I still wasn't fully on board of like, I'm going to leave him because that didn't even seem like a feasible possibility of reality. Like it was just, this is it for the rest of ever. And I don't know what else I'm going to do. I just know that I'm not happy, but this is just it. But we had just moved to a different house because he wouldn't let me pay the bills on the last house. We got evicted from that house. We were in this new space and, you know, we had really close neighbors and they could hear us yelling. We had one period of time where one one of them knocked on the door and was like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Like, go away, go. Like, you know, they were like, okay. And they left. And so that's when I started being like, okay, there is other people, you know, that that are out there that are seeing this and they know it's not okay. And so I was trying to start to think of like, okay how can I kind of do this on my own? Like, I don't want people to know that things got this bad. Like, I don't want anyone to know because that's the other thing too is like, you're so ashamed, right? So I was actually selling cars at the time, which I'm really, really, really bad at that. So it was not a good job. It was not a good job for me in any way, but they hired me for some reason and I was selling cars very poorly. And um, a woman walked onto the car lot and she was almost homeless. Like she was still wearing like makeup and she kind of looked... Put together but she was definitely like very closely like, on the verge of that and she walked in the car lot and she was like, looking at our cheapest car and i went up to her and she had like all sorts of junk in her arms that she was carrying and stuff and she was like hey i would like to buy this car and so i brought her in and this whole time i'm kind of thinking like this isn't real like she's not going to buy this car but i have to do this so let's do it right so i talking to her about her situation i was like okay well like do you have down payment money can you make payments like what's your situation and she's like well i don't have it but i had someone who the down payment for me can I call him and leave a message so she like calls and and leaves a message to some unknown person and then she goes okay you know I'm while we're waiting for him to call back I'm gonna go down the street to the grocery store I'll be right back I was like okay she left all her stuff but she didn't come back and I was like oh it, it's not real like it's okay like she she just really was you know on that edge and maybe she was on drugs or who knows well then the guy called back the person that she had called and he was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so thankful that she's finally getting out of there. I've been begging her every time she's called me, I will be more than gladly pay for the car for her right now. Here's all my information. So you can run my credit. Like I will do all of it. Just let me know when she comes back, I will get her in that car and we'll get her home. That's the only thing that matters. He felt like, like a childhood best friend or something along those lines, like someone that she had known
0: for years okay. and years and
1: years and was just
0: like trying he like, to help oh, her.
1: Yeah. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. Like, this is so exciting. I get to help this woman. Like, finally selling cars means something more than just selling a car, like, I get to help her, and I so badly wanted her to come back, but I had none of her contact information or anything like that, well, like, a week later, she comes back, and I was so excited, I, like, had all her stuff saved, even though it was, like, you know, very much junk, but I was, like, I, I saved it, and I brought it out, and I was, like, here's all your stuff, like, I'm so happy you're back, like, he called back, he ran, his, we ran his credit, he's ready to make, like, pay the car for you, and you can go, like, this is great, and then she, like, looked at me for, like, a couple minutes without really saying anything, and she was, like, I don't think I can accept anybody's help. And I was like, what? She's like, I I don't think I can do it. I I don't think I can. And she just like grabbed herself and she was like, thank you. And just left. And I was just destroyed. I was so upset and so sad. And I didn't understand why all these people were there trying to help her and she didn't want to accept help. That was like the moment I realized I'm doing the same exact thing that she's doing. There's people in my life that would help me. There's I'm in this horrible situation and I refuse to see it as a horrible situation because I'm scared. And if I started seeing it as a horrible situation, then maybe people would judge me or all these different things. But I'm refusing help for me and my kids because I don't want to be seen in a bad light. Like, what am I even doing? And that was the first moment where I was like, okay, if people offer me help, I'm going to take the help. Like, I'm not going to live like her. And about two weeks later, we went down to um, visit his mom. No, we came down over the um, St. Patrick's Day holiday, and it was on St. Patrick's Day. And my daughter woke up in the middle of the night. So I was like, up, like with her, you know. And he was so mad at me that I couldn't get her to go back to sleep because he was tired and he wanted to go out the next night and all this different stuff. And I was like, I don't know what you expect me to do. Like, she's just awake. And so he ended up like screaming at me in the middle of the night in his mom's house, just like yelling and screaming and saying these horrible things. And obviously, so she woke up and his sister woke up and they, you know, they were awake and his mom pulled me out into the hallway and she's like, I'm going to call the police. I'm calling them right now. This is what's happening. I wanted you to know. And I was just like, it was like, okay, this is my help moment. And I was like, all right, call the police. So she called the police for me and they came and they took him away. And for a while I was just like, oh my God, what did I do? Like I married him and then now I got him arrested. Like I'm the with this horrible person and I was staying with her for a while and she was like, you are not a horrible person. My son made horrible choices and I was just like, okay. Wow. All right. And so that's really where I was able to escape and I, I tried the thing for a while where I was trying to be the best parent possible. So I wanted to give him visitation, you know, like supervised visitation of my kids and he never showed up. Not a single time. He never, yeah. So now he's not allowed to talk to us or see us. He's never cared to do so. So he's completely out of our lives in that way. But it's, yeah. And that was one of those things where it was finally like the nail in the coffin. Like, oh my God, he literally cares not at all. Like he won't even show up to see them at all. Like, all right, fine. I'm done. There's no more.
0: Yeah. So all this time you actually were under this false belief that he loved you and he loved his kids, but, yeah. or, and, but he didn't.
1: No. So he's um, definitely a narcissist, but he's also a pathological liar. So um, in all, in all honesty, I know absolutely nothing about him. I, yeah. to this day, none of anything of that five years, of, or nearly five years of marriage is true at all. I have I don't know what was truth and what was false from everything from like, what was going on in his physical body, like, he told me he had all these, like, like, a ruptured disc in his back, and all this pain, and he, like, would vomit, and, like, make, make it real, and it wasn't, his mom was, like, no, that's not accurate, like, that's not true, and I was just, like, what, like, it, it, he did these physical things, and she was, like, no, it's completely false, like, none of that is true, and I was just, like, wow, so, like, and from that all the way to, like, his childhood like none of it anything he told me was the truth so I he was so good at this manipulation and he was able to keep track of these huge extensive massive lies that normal people never ever would be able to keep track of and so he had me deeply believing that and first of all he was also one of my first boyfriends ever so like I not only didn't really understand what love was supposed to feel like at all anyway, and he kept telling me he loved me and would do these huge elaborate things to prove that he loved me, air quotes, and it wasn't true. None of it was true. And so it was a long time and a lot of work where I had to be like, okay, I can't just not trust that anyone, whatever anyone says is a lie, you know, like he damaged that part of me. And anytime anyone would say anything to me, I'm like, my instant thought would be like, you're lying. And I'm like, oh, nope, that's him. Like he, it was just him. Yeah, I was really trapped in that trap.
0: So, Emily, it's been how long now since you've left him?
1: Seven, seven years. Well, yeah, my son was two. So, yeah, seven years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so, where are you right now with that? You think you're healed, or are you still hurt? And is it still lingering in your life? So, I did a
1: very extensive healing process. Um, And that kind of goes hand in hand with all my psychic abilities, too, because right after I, I left him, it took about six months for me to not literally be terrified all the time that someone was going to come kill me. Like, like it was, it was a long time of like that process. And then finally, like, I was like, oh, okay. Like I can start being more comfortable. And I was like, okay, I'm no longer afraid of my psychic abilities. Like they were totally shut off during the marriage because I was in fight or flight. There's no room for magic. And so I was like, I, there's nothing left for me to be afraid of. I've been afraid for years constantly. So screw fear. I don't even care what happens. I want to open up to that. But unfortunately, now they were so blocked, not only by the years of me trying to block them, but also by all of this trauma that was standing in the way that I had to really get super duper healed on the trauma spectrum before they would start to come out. And so I spent spent about three years single, really trying to just clean some of the trauma and stuff out. And then lo and behold, an amazing man showed up and he's wonderful and caring and everything my ex was not. And I feel like where I am in this particular point in my journey is I've overcome so much of the trauma. I've healed so much of the trauma, but also I'm thankful for it now to a degree because it really helped me to become the person that I am. And even though I didn't ever really do any of the things I thought I was going to do, like I didn't go to college and do all this stuff that I really wanted to do, you know, when I was a kid, none of that actually happened, but I am now the person that I always dreamed I would be the person that's resilient and really in touch with this magical part and, and really can help other people and all this different stuff. And without that experience and without having to do all that digging and all that stuff, I don't think I ever would have gotten to this place where I feel really healthy and I feel really whole. And even when those things still come back up, I can work through them and I feel capable of doing that. And so it'll be something that I don't know will ever stop truly affecting me, but as it does, the more I heal it, the more I continue to grow and expand. And I'm just really thankful.
0: Emily, thank you for taking us through your intriguing journey. As much as it was full of hardships, it was also full of hope. And those that are going through um, or are in similar situation as you were in, I'm sure will benefit from the life lessons that you've shared with them. According to the CDC, one in four women and one in seven men will experience physical violence by their intimate partner at some point during their lifetimes. That's a huge percentage. It's almost a quarter of women and almost 15% of men that will experience domestic violence. And now we're talking about just physical violence. There's also emotional violence, and those numbers are even more staggering. As the quote says, sometimes when things are falling apart, they may actually be falling in place. And Emily, that seems like what happened in your life. Finally, Things did fall in place, and I'm so happy to see you on the other side of all of this. What was also intriguing is that you said that you were a metaphysical coach. Can you tell us something more about that as well?
1: Um, As far as my metaphysical coaching stuff, so I really help people to unlock their own psychic abilities because we all have them; they're just blocked by all the gunk of life. (laughs) So I help people to unlock them and learn to use them without fear. Fear is one of those big things that stop us from using our magic and. And that living in fear sucks. So I want to make sure that everyone gets to clear that out. So if you're interested in that, um, all, of course, all of my information is on my website. So damselnomore.com. But I also have a really active Facebook community. So if you um, want to join a fun Facebook group, we do challenges and I give you all sorts of my metaphysical wisdom in there. Um, and it's just centered on helping you unlock your gifts and, and live fear-free essentially around them. So that's called Master Your Magic, um, Psychic Training and Development. So those are some really good ways to get a hold of me.
0: Great. And we will have all of that information in the show notes. Emily is there. This is, this was wonderful. I feel like this is a topic that people need to talk about. People need to understand. There may be so many out there who are trapped in a relationship that they don't need to be trapped in. Like Emily said, if you have people who are willing to help you use the help, Mm-hmm. Like they are there for you. Why not use it? Why remain trapped? And thank you for being so open and unfiltered about your story. Because again, there there are so many people who are scared to do that. And I'm happy that you're not. And I'm happy you're spreading the word. Is there a final message you have for those who may be in the same situation that you are in?
1: Yeah, I would say admitting that you're where you're at feels like an identity death it feels like you're you failed and all these different things but the truth is that admitting that is your first step in becoming the person that you want to be and becoming the person that is stronger than the person you were before and so not don't stay stuck in fear because you think it's the right thing to do if you're scared in your relationship it is not a relationship fear it should not be part of your every day in any way and if you're sitting there scared of how they're going to react or the emotions or if you do the dishes you're scared that they're going to be angry at you because you're not spending time with them but if you spend time with them they're going to be angry at you because you're not doing the dishes that's not a relationship and you can't love it away you deserve to be happy and you deserve to feel whole and you deserve to live each day without thinking and fearing constantly so that would be my number one message is you are deserving. you're worthy, and you are magic, regardless of what anyone else says. And you deserve to live in happiness and not in fear.
0: Very well said, Emily. If you are scared near relationship, then it is not a relationship. And listeners, if any of you find yourself in this situation, then you owe it to yourself to do something about it. If you need any information on how to contact Emily, it'll all be in the show notes. And this brings us to the end of season one of Sharing Life Lessons. But I cannot end without mentioning the COVID-19 situation. We are in a precarious situation. And right now, I want to extend lots of prayers to those who are suffering from COVID-19. I want to say a big thank you to the doctors, nurses, and healthcare staff who are in the front lines on our behalf, trying to help those impacted by COVID-19. And I want to send a lot of strength to the family members who have lost their loved ones to this virus. I want to end this episode with a huge virtual hug to all the medical professionals out there. And I'm compelled to read this letter that Sejal wrote to the doctor that treated her dad, who eventually passed away of COVID-19 three days ago. This is what she says. As some of you know, my father passed away on Saturday, March 28, 2020 from complications of COVID-19. I am numb with grief, but decided to write not about my father, which I do not have the strength to do right now, but about the doctor who treated my father at the end. I will call that doctor, Dr. Wonderful. Dear Dr. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you for letting my sister and I see our dad two times before he died and sit with him when he passed. My love for you, however, comes from what you did for my mom. You called us when we knew it was a matter of time. You allowed my 71-year-old mom to come in and sit with my dad for almost three hours. They talked and talked. You came in and asked him questions about him, his kids, his favorite food. He told you where we went to school and that his favorite food was Italian and my mom liked Indian food. He told you he loved my mom's sense of humor. You gave him life at the end of his life. By allowing my mom to hold him till the end. You gave us peace. I cried and hugged you tight when he passed. Thank you for letting me do that. You showed so much humanity and love. You are working long days and risking your life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Sending you love and strength. Sejal. Sejal, thank you for that heartwarming message. I join you in saying thank you, thank you, thank you to all the medical professionals out there who are working the long hours and risking their lives. Thank you again. With that, we end this episode here. See you again in two weeks on April 15th with the first episode of season two of Sharing Life Lessons. Until then, stay safe, be happy, and be well.